Blog Talk Radio. Scott Sewell with Legacy and Identity. I appreciate everybody that is tuning in or is going to listen to the archive editions and hope that our listeners is all doing well and that they'll bear with me as I get used to hosting the show and that we'll be able to uh, cover some good issues and talk about some good developments going on. I know that there's uh, a lot going on this time of year. It's a busy time of year. People have all kind of activities. It's a uh, uh, pretty pretty amazing uh, time of year in, in a lot of communities. I know that here in Florida, we just had last weekend our um, first specific genealogy conference. Uh, we've had a conference for 20 years, but we wanted to be able to have a evening that was dedicated just to genealogy and give people that were working on genealogy and trying to clarify their ties to different families and communities uh, a little support in that. So we had a pretty good time here, and I'm going to uh, see if Stacy's on the line because uh, she's she's kind of guiding me through all this. Stacy, are you there? I am, Scott. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm glad that you're there. And first off, while it's still fresh on your head, I know earlier earlier today me and you kind of talked about what had gone on in your your uh, last week's uh, travels and uh, conferences and stuff like that. And I just wanted to give you a chance to um, talk about it and, and stuff if you'd like. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak, Scott. I always appreciate um your time and uh, your attention to what is going on in all of the other communities. Um, The Red Bones, um, well, we've been writing the Goins book for actually two years now, and that has been quite an amazing trip in itself. Um, We've we've just had an overwhelming amount of uh, new discoveries through DNA, and um, you know, answered a lot of questions for us, and but then it also uh, presented a lot more issues that we, you know, hadn't faced before. Um, mostly in the fact that in 2007, I believe it was, we had DNA testing done among our Goins family of the um, West Louisiana and East Texas Redbones. And what what ended up happening was was kind of quite shocking, was we ended up with two separate male Y DNA lines. And so they 
uh, Jeremiah Owens and those familiar with the West Louisiana, Southwest Louisiana, and East Texas Redbones will will be very familiar with these names. Um, but the Jeremiah Owens line, who came from Philip Owens, um, they came in from South Carolina into Georgia into Mississippi, and they were in Mississippi a number of years, and then they showed up in Louisiana as what we call the no man's land. We had two lines uh, that matched each other perfectly. One was the um, Philip Goins, the Jeremiah line, and then we had the William Moses line who married Louisiana Hoosier. Uh, Jeremiah uh, married uh, so, um, excuse me, I'm going to pronounce her name the wrong way, but she was a Drake. And uh, Philip actually married Kizzy Ash, uh, or Nash, who was the daughter of one of our major progenating forefathers, Thomas Ash or Nash. And uh, those two lines matched heavily, and we know that, that the Jeremiah line and the William Moses line were actually um, considered or lived on Big Black, um, the Big Black Lake and the Big Black River in Mississippi, and they were called the Big the Black Big Black Band of Choctaws, and they were removed a little bit later or forced, forcibly removed a little bit later, and uh, when they arrived in Oklahoma, this group. Um, they were presented to the Choctaw Nation as, um, you know, members of their group, of their, you know, Indian nation. And there was uh, quite an uprising at the time, and several of our men were killed. Um, and it was basically over allotments, which you write extensively about in Bells of the Creek Nation, uh, that these these groups, these smaller groups, mixed blood groups that were coming in, late arrivals or self-migrant arrivals, it caused a lot of tension, and, and maybe you can kind of talk about that a little bit more, but several of our men were, were killed there uh, by the Indians or by the Choctaw, by this uprising, and were buried at Mayhew Mission. And then the second group of DNA um, testers was the Stephen Breckenridge, uh, who was the son of Old Thomas Goins and Nancy Johnson Goins. And now we uh, we had two testing, two separate testing um, uh, donors who were also descendants of Simon Goins and of William Collins Goins. And and like I say, the people who are from these, this group are pretty familiar. Uh, William Collins married several times, but he married a French woman uh, by the name of Mary Wallace. And then he married also a woman by the name of Amanda Samford, which is my great-grandmother. And he also married, I believe he may have married uh, another woman also as well, but I'm not sure if they had any children. And then Simon, he married a Cooper. And and so we're all kind of familiar with those surnames coming from South Carolina with us, you know, as a group, as a tribal group. And uh, these also, these descendants also of Simon and Hadley were also mentioned on 
William Goins of Nacogdoches state records as his only heirs, and they were his nephews. So these two lines matched, and the two lines over there in Louisiana matched uh, Philip Jeremiah line and William Moses and Louisiana Hoosier. And now what we discovered was uh, the William the William Collins or the old Thomas and Nancy Johnson line and the Simon line and, and so forth that matched in East Texas also matched several other progenating forefathers of the Redbones. And when I say that, what I mean is these men were specifically 100% identical Y DNA matches for one another. And those surnames included Leonard Covington Sweatline, Mm. Uh, uh, William uh, Warwick line, and they were associated with the Lumbees in in on that North South Carolina you know border over around Lumberton, and yeah. um, William William, who was also associated with Duwalee's Cherokee in Arkansas and uh, Missouri earlier. Missouri. Then we also had a match to, let's see, Goins, Warwick, Williams. We also had a match to the Powell family, and they were descendants of Osceola, or also known as William Billy Powell. And then we also had a match, I have to go through some names every time, I apologize, Scott. It's Goins, (laughs) Warwick, (laughs) there's so many of them, Goins. Warwick, Powell, Williams, and Sweat. Okay, so I got those guys covered. But then we were also only one genetic distance from the Richard Perkins line, who was another progenitor, actually, who came from the early Virginia settlement around north, um, you know, the northern neck of Virginia uh, in Acomic County, um, associated on Bohemia River there in the northern Chesapeake Bay area. And so he was kind of one of the older ones that that we were able to chase down. But um, he was also a a progenating forefather of the, the Red Bones. And so we met for the second year in a row, actually the third year in a row, to try to decipher some of this new DNA um, findings with our people. And we, we, we got a lot of progress done, and we were extremely happy with some of the things that we figured out together. And um, although it is still a giant puzzle and all we've got is all these little pieces, so um, we're attempting to put that together. And then we were I was invited by the Vernon Parish Historical Society to speak in Vernon Parish, Louisiana. And this was a fabulous um, turnout, a group. Uh, it was based on a book that I had began to write a number of years ago called GTT, Red Bones Gone to Texas. And what it's based on is the fact that there was a large disturb- a large feud fight uh, there in Vernon Parish, Louisiana, where our families had set up a trading post and where we were moving, actually moving um, contraband, 
stolen from the Spanish uh, ships that sailed into the Gulf of Mexico by um, Pierre and Jean Lafitte. And so we we were their men, you know, we were working for them. And we had a small trading post there in Vernon Parish uh, and a racetrack. And, you know, we dealt with the Indians. We, you know, fur traded and these kinds of things. And we had been settled there for a number of years. And then our community built a small schoolhouse. And the white men, the night before it was supposed to be the first day of school, came in and burnt our school down. And this caused the red bone you know, to be enraged, of course. And they invited the white men to come up to the trading post and have a little meeting about what had happened and what could be done, I guess, to remedy the situation. And they were asked not to bring any knife or any guns, but they it ended in a, in a bloody battle. Many, 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 many were killed, and we and wounded, and I even have a grandfather who a year later succumbed to his knife wound. Um, We still don't know all of the exact names of those people, but my one grandfather, Leonard Covington Sweat, he made GTT for Texas. Uh, he, He had some pretty serious wounds, and he got over those, and he ran to Texas to the Burgess Survey which ended up in many years later, his wife was a Burgess, but many years later it ended up that um, this became the Cachada Reservation in Texas. And it was based on a a survey by a Frenchman that was my grandfather named uh, John Burgess. And so later on he invited the Pacana Indians to come and live there because he married a Pacana Indian. And I think you can probably tell us a lot more about the Pacanas than I can. But we we had a beautiful turnout and we were able to go and visit the Glass Window Cemetery. And the reason that it's called the Glass Window Cemetery is because Mr. Groves had the first glass windows uh, in the, of the area, and so they just named it the Glass Window uh, Cemetery and is Trading Post. And so we had a large turnout. We were extremely happy, and everyone seems to – we were well-received, and everyone seems to have accepted, you know, some of these controversial things that were – you know, had gone on historically, that tension between our group and, and the whites and Thank you for giving me the opportunity to update everybody on that. And uh, but yeah. I, I don't know. I, I would I, I would love to get together and pick your brain about the Pacana Indians because I know that you know quite a bit more. And also the um, Apalachicola Indians who had a reserve by the French in Rapides Parish, Louisiana. See, many of our families settled there, and then they were forced removed. Uh, after the Louisiana Purchase to go to the Kasachi Forest, and we also followed over there. And um, so these groups kind of mixed up. And then, like I say, they a lot of those Red River Indians, the Cachadas and the Bacanas and the and the Apalachicolas, ended up uh, remnants of those families ended up in on the Burgess Survey, and today is the Cachada Indian Reservation in right. Texas. Right. Um, okay. Well, uh, this being my my first time around with the hosting, 
Um, we have a caller called in, so Great. maybe I'm going to try to click to our caller and see if they have a question or if something's going on that we can all hear about, or I'm going to try it. I haven't did it before. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Uh, hello. Do, do I have a caller calling in? Evening. This is Victoria Elizabeth Gaskins from Illinois. Hey. Hello. Hey, Miss Gaskins. Hey, can you hear me okay? I can hear you, yes. Good, I can hear Stacey, I'm glad yes. you called. I'm just Hi, listening. Hi, Nice to hear from you. Yes. It's all good. I'm just listening. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, the the that area that you're talking about, Stacy, really had a lot of uh, a lot of traffic. You might say. I know here in Florida, the Apalachicola originally got five reservations here in the Panhandle under under a separate treaty from the Creeks and the Seminole. And those reservations were the Apalachicola Reservation in Bluntstown under Chief John Blunt and another man named Tuskeharjo. Now, John Blunt was an Alabama Indian. His mother's brother was known as Red Shoes or Red Moxon, and they had they were multi tribal in a way, even though they went as Alabama. And so when it when the when the you know, when things got pretty tough, the the five different groups that were here, some of them were actual Apalachicola and some were just in with the Apalachicola, uh, they slowly kind of got ground down by what was going on in the times. You had the the Apalachicola Reservation of John Blunt at Bluntstown. And then north of there in what's now Gaskin or uh, Gadsden County near Quincy, you had a guy named Niamathla and his band of Tallahassees who were, who were not Apalachicola actually, but they were in with them. And then uh, further over a little bit to the uh, west of there, you had um, Egon Jatamico, which today Chattahoochee, Florida. You have uh, on the Georgia border, Lake Seminole area. He had a town there, and then as you went further to the west, you had a couple of other reserves set aside, Yellow Hair and another one. They didn't really occupy their their reservations as much. They were kind of more of a active groups. John Blunt um, kind of served as a scout for Andrew Jackson and Iganja Miko. He was very meek. He's very uh, elderly, and so he, uh, when the time of removal come, they all were meeting and they were being preyed on pretty pretty rough by uh slave uh raiders and uh it was just a rough area to be because you had red sticks on one side and and uh you know creeks and seminoles all around and it was uh just a tough place so they they removed and they had difficulty during the removal but eventually john blunt and his band wound up you know making it to texas to his relatives there and his people stayed around there for a while but uh, eventually, a lot of them went on uh, later into up into Creek Nation. Uh, some of them remained in the the area there that was Burgess, you know, uh, community. And uh, today, they're not a you know a, a, a separate group or anything. The descendants, um, as far as the Apalachicola go, there's no remaining um, recognized Apalachicola entity. You might say there's lots of families in Creek Nation that have. Uh, you know, ties to the to the Apalachicola tribal town, as it's called. It was called Dalwafaco, big capital. And uh, it faded out um, in the early half of the 20th century. They had the last corn dance, green corn dance, as a, as a town 
1949, an elder told me, uh, Sam Proctor, uh, maker of medicine at, at uh, Tallahassee Grounds. Right. And uh, so they uh, they left behind people here and there. Um, uh, you had uh, a lady named Mary Blunt who came came forward about 25, 30 years ago and tried to organize descendants of the Apalachicola group. And to some, some degree they have, and uh, um, they've, they've been active for quite a while as the, you know, the, the descendant group, I guess you'd say, of the Apalachicola. And uh, the ones that were already there when they got there, these Alabama, Coshatta, different group, they, um, they're still there today uh, on that reservation there close to Livingston. And their, uh, their culture is very strong as far as be, for such an isolated group. Um, in, in Creek Nation, you know, the Apalachicola, they spoke Hichita. They didn't speak Muscogee Creek proper, so they were a, a separate language group. And the Alabama was too, you know. And so yeah. um, that that language is kind of extinct as, a, as a, you know, the, the Apalachicola language. Um, the Miccosukee tribe in South Florida speak Hichita also, the, the Miccosukee dialect of it. So it was kind of kind of kind of related but not the same and uh from what i've gathered talking with different elders and stuff their language the Apalachicola's language was kind of kind of halfway between creek and choctaw it had different elements you know so it, it wasn't really mutually mutually intelligible with the creek speakers or or the alabama speakers even so right. yeah they're, they're kind of a, a a part of history in a way even though the family names are all still there, and there's people in Oklahoma and Creek Nation that know, you know, hey, I'm Apalachicola and this and that. In fact, I years ago, me and my cousin Pony Hill and them, we attended the funeral of a grandson of one of the last Nico of the Apalachicola, the last traditional chief um, mm. uh, there, Russell Thompson, and uh, he had he had a lot of blood ties to that community, the, the Dolores Lock Apalachicola group. So. Anyway, yeah. that's a little footnote of history there. As far as the Bagana that they're talking about, like that, um, there is still the Bagan Tallahassee Beach Ground they call, uh, and they're they're kind of, they went roundabout, kind of like all these other groups in their migrations and stuff. As far as having ties to them, um, yeah, it's a yeah. it's an interesting footnote that the Apalachicola, even though they're they're no longer organized, like a lot of the constituent groups of Creek Nation and. Uh, on across into the other tribes too. You got remnants of them amongst a lot of different groups, and you got really that's the majority of of uh, of, of ethnicities within Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, Shawnee Nation, Uchi, Alabama, Apalachicola, just on and on, Miccosukee even. Uh, that that you know they're part of Creek Nation today, but they they have their own unique and and uh, a lot of times their own language and stuff like that uh, in the past, if not now. The Uchi still have their language, Alabama some still have theirs, but they're all kind of part of the stock of, of Creek Nation besides the, the Muscogee Creek, that the, the, I guess you said the majority kind of. But um, I see. Yeah, interesting, and now interesting that, footnote there. Now that group in Texas also ended up with Chief Blount Metal, is that correct? Um. You know, uh, t- uh, tell me again the question. I had lost you for a second. I'm sorry. Um, Chief Blount gave that group of Apalachicola uh, there in Livingston on the Burgess survey uh, his medal from Andrew Jackson. Yeah. And I yeah, believe actually, they, still- they do. They do. His his grandson, Some, like I said, some of the descendants stayed around there, and they're still around there. I, I don't think they're enrolled uh, Alabama Coshatta 
tribal members, um, but they still live around there. And his medal that he was given for his service as a as a white stick or friendly creek or, you know, he called them different names, but a lot of the Apalachicola really stayed neutral and probably a big part of the reason they had to move on because they were kind of preyed on by everybody around them. Um, but they, they worked hard to remain neutral while they were here. And so for the service John Blunt had rendered to Andrew Jackson and, and the, the white sticks and stuff in scouting and helping and stuff during the conflicts, he was given a medal. And when, when they got on out there and he passed away after they got to Texas, the, the medal was handed down in the family. Uh, his grandson had it for a while. Um, and then now I'm not sure which individual has it right now, but it's still still there in the community. And, and their oral history is pretty strong from what I've gathered. I haven't went there myself, but I've got cousins that have and, and that have lived there and talked to them. And I actually met a, a few of their tribal members at, at Green Corn Dance in Oklahoma because for a little while we had – uh, some Alabama Crochetta coming pretty often um, from the um, oh uh, uh, Celestine family, the Celestine, I believe is the last name, and they, you know, they they pretty up on their oral history and their clan structure, uh, un, uh, you know, kind of uniquely in a way. A lot of the Muscogee people have seen a loss of clan identity or the importance of that in their modern community, but the Alabama Crochetta have a pretty um, strong clan system still still uh, going along, you know, that it's, it's a lot of Alabama, you know, it's, uh, uh, salt and, and daddy long legs. And these, these clans that, that when they come into Creek nation, they kind of blend it on in, but amongst themselves there, they still have a real strong, uh, strong traditional identity, you know, clan and stuff, made charcoal and all. Sure. Absolutely. And, um, I was also going to mention the fact that now the red bones were, documented by Dr. Sibley, you were talking about language, and and he identified us on the Calcasieu River in Louisiana. He said there was about 115 warriors who were so, that they, he called us Choctaws um, with the O-O-S on the end, and he said that we spoke Mobilian, that we spoke, you know, like a guttural language that was like Creek and Cherokee and, you know, just a, a variety of languages and was more based on a, a trade language uh, between these people. Like you say, they, they were guides. In fact, my grandfather's name is Guide, G-U-I-D-E. So, um, you know, I'm sure they were heavy traders and mixed blood families, countrymen like you present in Bells of the Creek Nation with your Nimrod Doyle. And we find, uh, when I was in Nacogdoches, I, I was going through those records, and there's just tons of records on uh, Nimrod there and Muskogee, his daughter, and um, what was his son's name? Winchester. Well, it- yeah, he had Winchester, and um, uh, uh, they had uh, he had he had several several kids. Um, he had a, a son named Winchester that was you know pretty present in the records, like you said, as well as his daughters Muskogee and Amanda, and uh, uh, they were married several times to different people there to, uh, in the Sulphur Springs area. They were kind of pioneers of founding that that area, and lots of descendants there today, and and in Creek Nation, Oklahoma, too. But uh, Jackson was another. Uh, his name was actually Andrew Jackson Doyle, A.J. Doyle, as he was known. And 
Uh, he, he, he was on so a lot of them you see on the roll up in Creek Nation, even though they were living in Texas, they maintained ties. They lived in one area but had ties strongly to, to Creek Nation. And some of them went on and lived in Creek Nation and, and were buried up there. And uh, some of the, the family are still in that area of Sulphur Springs. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of ties there. Um, yeah. But that area well, that you're we... talking about saw a lot of, a lot of traffic. Uh, I know that the Appalachian tribe that also started out here in the, you know, the panhandle of Florida over close to, to in Leon County, they went out to Louisiana as well and lived an entire, you know, century and a half out there before they began to be kind of resurfacing and, and are now organizing. And Chief Bennett, I believe, was their leader the last time I met them uh, a couple of decades yeah. ago. But they're, they're, they know their identity as Appalachian Indians from uh, over here in the Panhandle, and they were they, were, you know, they were uh, more attached to the Spanish in a way. So they left and went to Mobile, and then from Mobile they went on to Louisiana, and yeah, they had quite a travail uh, during that during that time. They they were preyed on as a people, the Appalachian, and because they had uh, been been Catholicized and ad- adapted into a kind of a almost like the mission system you find in California. They had a similar thing here until the Creeks just really rolled in and put an end to all that. They were over. 20 different missions across the panhandle and the different uh, groups that were able to survive that kind of invasion by creeks uh, taking taking slaves to sail and stuff uh the the french and spanish and all them kind of uh looked after them and you had entire neighborhoods or settlements there in mobile area for a long time uh, of these refugee small remaining tribal groups they were kind of piled in on top of each other and then with the pull out of Mobile, some of them went on to Louisiana and um, different groups had different, you know, fates, you might say. But I know the Appalachians are still around and are still um, organizing and they're not fairly recognized, but they're, they're working on it, you know, as far as trying to get acknowledgement and stuff. The Appalachians, that is, separate from the Appalachicola. Sometimes there's confusion, but they're two separate groups with, with different, you know, origins and histories. The, the Appalachians were here originally in this coastal region and 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 the creeks kind of came in and, and and run them out i guess you'd say mm-hmm. right and the white people also um after the after the louisiana purchase um they had been you know they were removed from their reservation there in rapides parish and i'm told to remove to the kasachi hills and the forest and i think that they lived there for quite a little time and then once the white settlers moved in, they ended up burning those people out. And a right. lot of them left Louisiana came on into Texas. And I would assume that that was how that they settled over there. And then we also went to Liberty, Texas, which was um, where Talihana uh, Rogers uh, Houston lived, and her plantation is still there, Grand Cane Plantation. She was the consort of Sam Houston. Of course, she was a Cherokee. She was a member of Chief Bulls and Big Mush's group in Arkansas, and earlier they had been in Missouri. And uh, our family settled down there, and my great-grandmother, Nancy Johnson, who Goins, who was married to Thomas Goins, she received uh, head rights and a large league and labor there from Sam Houston himself. 
And uh, we went down there and we discovered uh, a cemetery that that held a lot of our, our, and we believe Nancy Johnson Goins was there. And so it was a very memorable trip for us. And we're really connecting the dots. We we also went to the courthouse and we discovered that Frank Goins, who was part of the Bill Cody's West Wild West show, uh, did in fact come back from uh, Minnesota in the Sioux Nation, which he is was a part of. And and claimed his land down there, and and that was kind of shocking to us. We did not realize that he had come back from. They ran away, basically, I think, from slavery, and uh, or not slavery, but be, from being in, enslaved, you know. And so they, um, he ended up coming back from Minnesota and and claiming his land there, which ended up being quite. Um, Quite a shocking thought to us, right? Right. That we did not realize that, you know, we knew they were biologically related to us because of DNA, but, um, you know, this brought in the Sioux Nation for us, and we had not previously considered that our group was part of the Sioux Nation. I'm really not sure how they ended up there, but. Or how they were considered Sioux, unless that one of the ancestors married into the Sioux Nation, and then they just became part of that. So I think yeah, a lot of yeah. the the bigger tribes absorbed some of these um, remnant runaways and and people who were attempting to get away from forced removals and so forth. Right. Right. That was quite interesting. Well, we so we see again and again in the the archival record that that process of, you know, it, it seems initially or sometimes for, you know, as far as it goes, the uh, it don't make sense, this one individual or family in with this other group and stuff. But those, you know, those times were so chaotic and stuff where we're not surprised when we see that again and again. We, we just, uh, because we had our genealogy conference this last weekend and, you know, kind of as an outreach to people working on their genealogy, trying to, to uh, establish, you know, uh, documentation of their ties to this community and that community and stuff. Uh, my cousin Pony Hill, who's a researcher, has been, uh, funny enough, uh, last episode we talked about the new movie coming out for uh, Free State of Jones, which is in southern Mississippi. And as we, we've done our genealogy work through the years, we've seen a lot of ties, different different creeks, different uh, Chiraw and, and Catawba families and stuff that wound up over there in in southern Mississippi at different times, as well as all these other groups that are there that are Choctaw and just a whole lot of groups that, that are in that area. And in the genealogy work, we found where some of our, a couple of our families that were here, part of Scotttown and stuff, the Boggs and some others, had ties to that community there in Jones, you know, Mississippi, that, that uh place and they were Indian but that I, we you know we haven't seen the movie so we don't know if they get into that at all as far as mixed race people and the and the Indian identity and stuff like this we know it's probably going to be a Hollywood thriller and it's going to you know kind of gloss over a lot of the real finer points and complications and and subtleties of, of identity in yeah. that narrative to, to, to get it across in a two-hour movie but we found where one of our uh, families from here that's long been controversial uh, as far as their identity, um, we were able to make ties to 
some of our branch families that went off to there, the, the Boggs were a family in our in our community then and now that it was kind of controversial um, as far as uh, some, you know, they say, well, there's ties to Cherokees and there's ties to Creek Nation, there's ties to different ones. But as we've done the genealogy, like so many families, we found that folks that in the last few generations thought they were Creek just go back to the same old Carolina, Virginia diaspora and are them, them same families, just the name would change, but they carry on this identity of, of being mixed people and Indian and not really being able to pass and fit in and, and you know, keep into themselves. And that's that's what we found with these bogs over there in, in Jones was that they were tied in. And so in a way, uh, was an interesting discovery that, that we're going to try to get it all together so it can, we can get it out there. Uh, a lot of times yeah. it's, it's a painful process as we work on families that, the current generation feels, well, I was told I'm Cherokee or I'm told I'm Creek, and they, they build an, an identity on it over the years of their life. And if they're sometimes 60, 70, 80 years old, it's it's painful when the, you know, or, or, or not, depending on their attitude, when the, the documentary evidence points to other tribal ancestries, racial ancestries, and they themselves have cultivated through their life. But as hard as that is, we have to do it for the future generation's sake to say, here's documentary evidence, here's DNA evidence, here's, you know, ties that usually are way bigger and way more, um, uh, make a lot more sense than some of the you know, narratives that have been developed, you know, over the last generation or two about, you know, this group of Cherokees or that bunch of Creeks or Blackfeet or, you know, just a lot of the oral histories that the mixed people would grab onto to explain who they were without, you know, the benefit of, of uh, the things that we have today to help us understand the larger picture. Uh, a lot of those are having to be surrendered. We've, we've saw that during the last 10, 15 years, 20 years, even with the, the emergence of DNA. Yeah. I remember when I was, you know, decades ago, the Melungeons and the, the Lumbees and different groups were, were, you know, they loomed large as far as their identity as like, you know, the mixed groups. And then now that DNA has come along and now that, you know, we have instant Internet access to just countless records and things. The pictures become a lot clearer of the ties between these groups, and at times they upset the the, the oral histories of, of a generation, two, three ago, you know, as far as what they thought they were and how these communities are going to take these new tools and redefine their 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 identity amongst themselves and in their relationship to other groups that we now know are related or not related, dependent. Uh, is a yeah. something that is is interesting and and at times painful. I've I've seen that in certain families and even communities to where the 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 narrative is so radically different from their you know from the reality of of what the the documentary and genetic uh, evidence shows that uh, that's that's why I think it's important stuff like this radio show stuff like the social media we're trying to do the conferences that we try to have to help bridge the gap of this generation now in putting those tools to good use and uh, surviving this latest hurdle. Because that's, that's really how I see the impact of modernity, whether it is the availability of documentary evidence or genetics. It, it's almost as big a challenge to the, to the self-identification of the individual and group as it was 50, 60 years ago during desegregation when the, the entire legal framework and social framework of these communities went through major upheaval and had to redefine where they stood in relation to each other and to the outside world. I see this as almost as 
impacting of a of a of a change, you know, uh, and it just awaits to be seen how individuals and communities, you know, families, uh, how they take those tools that are now there and say, does this give me license to walk away, or is this actually a, a another tool in our tool belt of survival, you know? And that's 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 what I think is a major important um, topic that should be addressed in a lot of different areas. Is that you know are these are these new facts, which are always difficult to, you know, when you get something that's there, you know, it's genetic or you find, you know, enough documentary evidence that you can get some idea of, of the controversy and the struggle of generations past. What, what are you going to do with that now as a community? And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in admiration of the Melungeons, uh, the Lumbees, some other larger groups who have, who have kind of taken that in a courageous way and, and not really turned away from it, but have said, you know, we're as a individual, a family, and a group. We're going to try to find out what this means, and and not just say, you know, let me just cling to a to an easy out. Let me just cling to a, you know, a family uh, narrative about where we came from. But say, wow, this genetic information says I'm related to this other family that I didn't know, or I'm not related to this other group, and yet I am these others. And take that and build on it. And that's what I'm. That's what we're doing here in Florida with, like, the genealogy conference we just had, uh, encouraging people, take DNA tests. Let's build, a, let's build a genetic database of our community to go right alongside the archival uh, documentary evidence that we've built over decades and decades that say, you know, this is our history in a legal and social context, and now we have this whole other stream of information and data, which is our, our, our genetic identity. And that's really uh-huh, impacting a lot of people, you know. I think it's the biggest challenge we have facing us is is I have so many people write to me, uh, I mean, weekly, and say, well, my family says we were Cherokee, so we're not related to the Moa, or we're not related to the Sioux, or we're not related to uh, the Appalachian, to the Creek Muscogee. But that is just simply not true. There was a great assimilation of tribes. And this is very little understood and very little um, recognized that for survival purposes and also because of the encroaching white settlement, uh, many of our tribal people assimilated. And so um, when you, you know, you kind of get that mixed blood, muddy water there of like you were talking about the the Appalachies and the Appalachicolas, and then you got the Cachadas and the Bacanas, you know, over there in Texas, they mixed up together. They weren't the same people, but um, they they did they did come together for survival purposes. And so I think this is a, a little understood fact that just because your family says, oh, we were Cherokee, uh, you and I both know, um, that that absolutely could be true, but then there could be other tribal affiliations influenced your your DNA and your heritage. So, um, and I think the biggest challenge for us um, as red bones, and I, I'm just speaking for the red bones, is that that we really need to researchers who have been in this uh, genealogical researchers who have been working on you know, their families who were descendants of the people known as Redbone, is that they have kind of a little bit of a hard understanding of tribal identity versus 
why single family identity. Um, these people traveled together, they migrated together, they married among one another. And so um, it, it's kind of hard for a regular genealogist with regular genealogical standards to fit their family into a nice, tidy genealogy without uh, considering a tribal uh, view of these people And so I think that's the biggest challenge That we have We have denied that tribal affiliation um, Because of the society That we live and we grew in And that we you know, descended out of And now we have to kind of go back And say well wait a second My grandfather matches Five other of my grandfathers And this is true um, These right. Some of these families did not have a surname. And so besides the fact that mothers would pass their name on to some of these descendants, um, the fact also is is that um, we didn't have a surname. And so we adopted white, anglicized surnames, and, and we think, oh, I'm a Springer, so my family goes back to England. Well, that's not necessarily true with our people. And so I think that's a little difficult aspect of, you know, normal genealogical practice. It's, yeah. it's, we're stepping yeah. out of the norm in so many places that we really must work together in a tribal context so that we can understand these people better. And so I think you're yeah. doing a fabulous job of of helping us to get to those points and um I think it's vitally important that that we we address those issues as in this radio show. And I know Virginia she or Victoria, excuse me, um she comes from a North Florida settlement of the Gaskins and they were mixed bloods and and I believe she she's the last one of her people, you know. Uh, so she's like a lone, a lone person there um, working diligently to document the history and the genealogy and 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 of her people. And and sometimes it feels you and I have talked about this. Sometimes it feels very lonely here, you know, and that um, we don't always feel like we have the support, but I think in the most of the cases that they just don't understand, Scott, you know, the uh, importance of including all of these tribal affiliations and, and these tribal peoples together. So I appreciate everything you do. I think the biggest challenge that we're, we're um, coming up against is the the lack of understanding that assimilation ran both ways and that in these large Carolina diaspora communities, whether they be Red Bones, Melungeons, the people here in Florida, just, you know, dozens of groups all, all, all around, that during that time, these communities assimilated white people. It wasn't like with reservated Indian tribes and their half-breeds and then the quarter-breeds and interpreters and scouts and those classic nations, Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, they arose as a reaction to the presence of first the colonial governments and powers and then later the Americans. And they, you know, part of their identity was formulated by the view the others had of them, and a big part was their internal view of each other, our people, or as my great-grandpa used to say, a nation of our own. My grandma asked him one time, 
You know, we're talking about 80 years ago now. You know, Dad, what what kind of people are we really? Because she could see the reactions and the way it worked in her world growing up. And he said, baby, we, we're a nation of our own. And, and that's how it was, strong ties of kin, blood, identity. And these, these are actually the mechanisms of, of human communities worldwide. And the, the challenge that a lot of those large nations today as they exist, like I'll just say, for instance, Cherokee Nation, because I lived there for years and years in Oklahoma, is that, you know, you've got 320,000 enrolled members of Cherokee Nation. The vast majority, probably in a good 90-some percent, don't speak Cherokee, have very low blood quantums. In other words, like we covered in Cherokee Paradox, if they took a DNA test, they probably wouldn't even show any American Indian ancestry. These are the average members of a federally recognized Indian tribe today, one of the largest in the United States. That's the reality today of, of the Cherokee identity. If that's not a hallmark of a community assimilating those around them in, you know, and it's a two-way process, uh, I don't know what would be. I mean, you have those isolated pockets and regions where you have lots of full-blood Indian, quote-unquote, you know, full-blood Indian people today. You can go to South Dakota. You can go to Minnesota, Arizona. That, those communities are there. They're actually the exception. The, these hundreds and hundreds of federally recognized Indian tribes, if you visit these places, if you get to know these folks, I've only been to dozens and dozens myself, so I, I can't speak to all of the 500 and something fairly recognized tribes, but for the, for a large part of these tribes and most of them that I've been to, European blood is the preponderance of ancestry. I mean, yeah, you you have a tribe of, of uh, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, depending on the tribe, you know, wherever, and the face that's put forward is an unchanged monolithic identity. You know, you've got the Sault Ste. Marie tribe that has always lived in that region, and they're an Indian tribe, and this and that. But when you go there and you get to know the realities of a community, what you find is the preponderance of the ancestry is European, and that the the native ancestry is a small component of the overall ancestry of a community, and that is not a reality that wants to be dis- that anyone wants to discuss, and how assimilation worked one way and the other, and communities like ours that are not federally recognized, that are not supported by federal dollars, that are not protected by, you know, federal and state legislations and yet continue to exist, continue to to travel through time and generations and, and adapt to those changes are a real lesson in survival that I think it's a shame that anthropology, sociology, these different academic, you know, uh, areas of, of research and interest don't take a bigger um, interest in that, that, you know, for there to even be the Lumbee tribe, for there to even be red bone people, for there to even be, you know, dozens and dozens of these communities that survived through all those di- really difficult times that are now surviving modernity and are laying out groundwork of geographically specific identity. I mean, whether you got a bunch of Lumbee ancestors or a handful, if you're from Robeson County, if you're from that area, you know, it, it, it's a Lumbee community. It's, you don't have a blood quantum card from Bureau of Indian Affairs to say, guess what, you're a tribal member or you're not. You have a an identity really based on and rooted in community, kinship, shared uh, endeavor, then and now. And, you know, I think some of the fairly recognized tribes could learn a lot from communities like Moa, like the Lumbee, like the Redbone and the Melungeons, you know, just large 
larger communities, much less lots and lots of small ones. And I, in the book that we've got coming up, this uh, book that we've we've almost got done and getting ready to to release about the state recognized tribes in Alabama. You know, there are in my research, I've come across several communities there that, for all intents and purposes, now you would call extinct in that they existed 50 years ago, 100 years ago as distinct communities, and yet the the hurdle of modernity was a little bit too high for them. I mean, you can take – I look at two communities there, Wild Fork community that was 35, 40 miles north of Porch and Porch. One's Creek, one's of a Carolina Chihuahua origin, families that the surnames you recognize right off from among all those others that, that we've already talked about. And that, that you know, when, when, the, when the barriers of segregation came down and when society began to shift a half a century ago, you know, better, better options opened up and some communities maybe were too small to make it over that hurdle or maybe the local forces were too you know, strong still, and people just moved away. And, you know, when I look at a community like like Wild Fork, it's almost extinct, and one like Porch that's doing better than ever today with their new casino and with the developments that go on there, economic, social, and such, it, it couldn't be a different story, you know, if you tried, of night and day, of the survival of one and the, the, the end of another. And that's why I asked my friend Glenn Simmons to do the introduction for the, the, the new Alabama tribes book because he's from Wild Fork and he looks identifiably Indian and he lives very Indian. Yeah, he lives in Tennessee. I mean, he doesn't live at Wild Fork here in lower Alabama, but uh, his identity as a native person and as a descendant of these types of communities is, is very strong. And he, he lives his life even in the context of he's living his life in other communities, not his own tribal community of his grandparents time, you know, that, that he has a lot of oral history and connection to, but it itself is gone. It's, it's eroded away. And that's that difference that, that I'm talking about, that the economic development, the, the social empowerment, these kind of ish, things that state-recognized tribes, federally-recognized tribes have in their toolkit and that non-recognized tribes, you know, don't really have, or if they have, it's not, not, not much, and yet they still make it. They still remain and still, you know, um, uh, go forward generation to generation. And, and that's why I, I myself admire a lot of these communities, especially the ones I know here so well, like Moa and others that, that uh, as distinct communities, they have long histories. And, uh, you know, some of their biggest detractors and, and, and even adversaries are Indian tribes, fairly recognized tribes. You know, I, I talked with one of our elders that, you know, he's 75, and he was there at those first meetings 40, 50 years ago when the Ports Creeks and the Moa and all them would meet. And, you know, this guy would say I'm Creek, that guy would say I'm Choctaw, another guy would say he's Cherokee. This was in a time when folks was just not white folks, basically. And that was the, the, the force that bound the communities in their orbit, you know. And once that ground shifted and, you know, the, the documentary record became part of the narrative of who are these people, what is this community? And then you, you began to see the evolution of the last few generations to where uh, they, they take on a, a new challenge different from that of the previous era of leadership, like, like Fred Walker and, and others up there at Porch back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. The challenges they faced, completely different almost than the leadership from the 60s and 70s and 80s on into federal recognition. Uh, Calvin McGee and others a very different struggle from today's leadership 
you know, uh, Eddie Tullis, Buford Roll, and people like that, the Tribal Council of Ports, that are ongoing just 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 a few days ago and in upcoming votes about tribal membership. Are people going to be disenrolled? That's a major playing out issue at this very moment on the Ports Reservation. You know, are you going to vote to have these major changes occur and people may or may not be included on the roll anymore? Uh, these, these are things that are playing out across the country in reality, but mm-hmm. – it's kind of like that, uh, kind of like that commentary I put into that last, uh, you know, uh, Redbone Chronicles. I call it the buckskin curtain. Lots of people don't know that these are the things that are going on in Indian country. Whether it's Indian country meaning you know the, the fairly recognized, state recognized tribal groups, or just where mostly Indians live, you've got these things going on that just like many people know. You know, Indian country and, and Indian communities were long, long refuges for you know outlaws and people on the run and stuff like that because the, the force of law wasn't there compared to a white town or, or something, you know. And so you'd have these undesirable elements that came to make their home in these Indian communities because they knew they, they couldn't get caught there. Well, that's kind of different, but a similar situation in that the struggles over disenrollment that two dozen tribes that I'm tracking right now are going through, whether it's California or it's Portsman or it's Michigan, different tribal groups, you know, that's uh-huh. not known in the mainstream, even the Indian mainstream. Lots of, it's just now beginning to break through where you see blogs, you see tribal newspapers, you see on a rare occasion, national news media and stuff saying, what's going on? Why are these, you know, all these people being disenrolled from their, their own tribe? And, yeah, the issues are complex. The issues are not easily explained. Well, this one's an Indian and that one's not. It's not that simple. It's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's, it's a real uh, tangled narrative and a tangled situation that, that, you know, really only heartbreak comes out of it. And there may be more profit in it one way or another, but the heartbreak is going to be there either way as you see, uh, you know, outcomes that really aren't based on those, Community level identities To where someone's always been A member of a tribe Their family's always been part of that community Before the tribe For some tribes that have been fairly recognized In the last 50 years Before the tribe even existed These folks were part of that community And then now, you know As you've seen that That real impact of the documentary evidence The archival evidence And then DNA hasn't even hit yet That's that's something that I'm I'm tracking Because I'm watching now things play out regarding the archival documentary evidence at ports who were fairly recognized in 1984 and base role being the 1900 census and the 1890 special Indian census. Those, those two documents are being reevaluated as defining the, the tribal membership at, at, at ports. And lots of people are saying, or, or you know, several I've talked to lately saying, why can't we use these other sentences that show my ancestor is Indian? Why do we got to use that one? And there are answers to these questions, but they're usually not nice. They're usually not something that everybody uh, could know because some would say, no, no, uh, this, is, this is more complex than, than you understand, and we'll, we'll tell you how it needs to be. That's why I'm all for daylight, fresh air, you know, media coverage of these issues because there's a lot of dark – Dusty corners in Indian country, uh, federal, state, and even non-recognized tribes, and so I, I see it playing out here and there and other. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in 
you know, getting these uh, out there, you know. Right. Right. Absolutely. Uh, I agree. Uh, it's time to shine a light in those dark corners and, and try to figure all of this out. And it's, it's, it's like you say, it's a paradox. It's, it's, it's totally a dichotomy, you know, a, a paradigm shift uh, among our people and among uh, the federally recognized tribes, you know, that, Hey, they're, you know, you may not be uh, what you always believed that you were, and 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 you may be something that you were told you never were. And so, <laughs> um, we talk about uh, my Comanche friend who, uh, you know, did a DNA test, and and you know, he always believed in his oral family tradition was he was pure Native American. There was no uh, introduction of any other kind of blood, and. When he got his DNA back, you know, I mean, as an old man, he he found out that that just wasn't the case, and that's heartbreaking, I'm sure, and something that someone has to learn to live with, and um, doesn't make it easy for your identity. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, seen, I've seen that myself. Just dozens of people that I've, I've, you know, that's why I, I tried to get Cherokee Paradox done and out as quick as I could to begin to address these issues because I don't see them being addressed in other other venues that I, I, I'm surprised they're not. But one thing is that there's still this, this mechanism of really mainstreaming, I call it. In other words, if you, the work done by Professor Sweet in the history of the color line and, and those of us who are kind of keeping tabs on this to where the steadily moving line of who's white and who's not, you know, here in the South and the deep South where we live, you have, you know, over the last 50 years, just almost a 360-degree turn, you know, all the way around of, of of identity to where in the public spaces, in the in the county courthouses and stuff, these battles are still being fought. In the funeral homes, me and uh, my cousin Pony, we had to bury our, our old uncle that was our leader for a long time, Buck Bryant. And, you know, though we filled out the paperwork and we put Indian and he looked, you know, visibly Indian, they wanted to put white on the death certificate, and we refused to allow that. Same thing with our children, their birth certificates. You know, you, you put Indian or you put whatever you put, and they put white because they want to mainstream to maintain a white-black dichotomy and that there be white people and there be black people to, to the benefit of one and the less of a benefit to, to another one, you might say. And the thing yeah. is, American people have deep roots of, of – of mixing and, and having a very hybrid identity and no one is served by those mechanisms of mainstreaming. And that's what I encourage people to, to really look at is what is mainstreaming? What does that mean? You know, why, why is it important to recognize your ancestral identities and know about them with well, European being a major one? And that's great. But as Americans, those, those terms American and, and uh, European are not, equitable terms like sometimes you, you find in some corners where people want to say, well, you know, the real American is white folks. And in a, in a rare time, you'll say, well, the real American is the, the full-blood Indian. Well, you know, good luck in hunting down a real American because in my <laughs> travels, that's a very, very, very rare person that I meet that's nothing but full-blood Indian as far as their own recollection, much less what a DNA test would say. And that all being the reality, that all being the case, now's the time to understand the fallacy of racial identity and these these um, imposed 
you know, outdated ideas about race that white people, black people, you know, and, and that kind of no man's land in between that we've been for centuries on end, you know, the mainstream process is undermining itself in a way in that, you know, I, I work in a public, uh, I, I work in a public capacity in a, in a state prison. And I see the mainstreaming to where we have white prisoners and black prisoners. Now, a guy can't even speak English. He might be from Yucatan, Mexico. He's probably going to be put down as white and treated, you know, as as these two things in the prison system. And my relatives in law enforcement say it's the same way. When I go and I get my driver's license, I say, you know, now that we have the option for a multiracial thing, you know, most of my life I just put Indian. Now I think it's a testament to the, the growing understanding and identity of our common mixed race, mixed identity <clears throat> origins to say, I'm all these races, man, and you're going to put that on the form. You know, you're going to put that on yeah. the census. I'm, I'm not, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not going to go along with the mainstream. You know, I understand I have right. ancestors of many races, many identities, and it's important to honor them and ourselves by um, doing away with outdated ideas and stuff, just like we did 50 and 60 years ago, you know, during the civil rights struggle. I, I think that's an ongoing struggle, this, this civil rights. That oh. Civil rights. We the, we, the, we the people ourselves will define who we are, and self-identification is a major issue. You know, it, it's something that, that now more than ever we have the right to put forward, and we, we need to, to take advantage of that, and and in all all opportunities do that, and Try to resist the mainstreaming that occurs. Check what they put on your documents. Even though you fill it out, check and see what the the county clerk put on there. Check and see what the funeral home put on there. Check see, see what the hospital put on there, and and identify yourself as you will in, in your own understanding of who you are. You know. Yeah, I I don't really see why. Uh, I don't know that there's any laws that, but I mean maybe there is that that say hey. Um, I'm going to identify you as this, and and I know Wayne Winkler of the Melungeon Heritage Association. He filled out on his children's birth certificates and everything, you know, for from a certain point in his life as Melungeon, and and he really got a lot of kickback and and really argued. But I mean, who can who can say that you are not what you say you are? And so I, I just I, I'm like you. I think these Dragonian uh, laws and of identification uh, into a mainstream white, black, you know, Hispanic, what have you. Of course, Hispanic people. If you got down to the bottom line of the, of Hispanic people, these are Native American people who were uh, colonized by Spaniards and mixed with the Spaniards, and so or the Spaniards mixed with them. And so if they wanted to identify as Native American, who is to say that they're not allowed? And and so I, I really think that you've got a great point there in saying that you should be able to fill this out under what you I, believe. I, I fully agree. I fully agree. I, I just saw a recent article um, that was out where uh, it was entitled Removing Race from Human Genetic Research. Um a group of scientists are urging colleagues to take steps forward and stop using racial categories when researching and studying human genetics. Um, 
They said that Absolutely. it is time for biologists to find a better way, concludes the opening passage of a recently published paper in Science, um, written yes. by the Drexel School of Public Health's Michael Udell, the University of Pennsylvania's Dorothy Roberts, and Sarah Tishkoff, as well as the American Museum of Natural History's Robert DeSalle. Um, they, they, you know, these guys, they're, they're trying. You know, they're, they're going forward, and it's usually 10, 20 years behind that the, the social impact begins to hit. But that's what I really am excited about is that genetics will impact in a very, very deep way the lives of the next generation and the next generation, we ourselves are always going to kind of live in the shadow of, you know, when I was growing up, there wasn't genetics, there wasn't even computers. Now it's just all these tools are available to help people understand the complexity of identity. And that's, that's just one little piece of evidence there that I, you know, saw just lately, you know. Absolutely. The, 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 this is, you know, back in time, uh, Frank and Mary, this was their their bottom line, is the history of the U.S. color line. You know, the United States has certainly um, been, you know, using this Dragonian-type identification for people of, of color, you know, uh, just lump them into a black or lump them into a white. And um, this just isn't the case. Um, most people, or many people, um, just don't identify in that culture. And so if you don't identify with that culture, it doesn't feel and it doesn't set right with you to be classified sure. as such. And so exactly I hope right. I, in fact, I think it's extremely important in that what we see playing out around us right now in politics, in social policy, and such is relating to a feeling of loss that those of us who grow up and have lived in Indian communities and stuff most of our life have, have always known to be very present in the Indian community. Now, quote unquote, white people are feeling that where they say, wait a minute, my identity is important to me. And, you know, as long as the, the mechanisms of the mainstream was kind of benefiting this sector of, of our, you know, country's folks here, uh, it, it was not important. But now that the shift occurs, you see an emergence of a resistance, even, you know, among that major portion of the American population, you know, just average mainstream white people in, in, in some, you know, regions especially, you, you see where they're saying, wait a minute, my, you know, my identity, my religion, my language, you know, what we call culture and have been the bedrock of the Native American community for a long time. Now, now as the wheel turns and this very diverse, you know, uh, country diversifies even more, you see that emergence of, of, of identity as a major issue where, you know, like you, all the names you've said over the last couple of centuries, that, you know, that was a, a daily struggle in your life was your identity. You know, you weren't cruising along in the mainstream. Now that the mainstream is shifting to a browner actual, you know, phenotype or or uh, identifiable, you know, uh, identity, you, you have even those, like I'm talking about, who are saying, you know, what's, what's this about and what do we need to do? And, and I think some of the, you know, some of the vitriol that we've seen in the politics and stuff of this last time around, you know, just the last eight years, to me, have been amazing in that, you know, you had your first African-American president, 
who was, was a mixed race person. And then now we see this emergence of a new, you know, kind of very different um, political thing that's not the old party. You know, it's not the old thing. It's a it's an emerging thing. It's a, a cutting edge kind of uh, politics that's going on that, that we really haven't seen before or, or, or you know, are even able to easily quantify. You, I hear the, the puzzlement in some of the news reports and, and different stuff that I, I see where they're like, where is this movement coming from? This, you know, backlash, this conservatism, these kind of things, and and that stuff. And I think we're going to see even more of this going forward. So what we're talking about is very relevant, very important, and the histories of our communities are very important to me for one very important reason that, that above all is that you can be diverse, you can be multiracial, you can be, you know, all these things and survive and prosper and as the, the mainstream of American identity continues to, to evolve and change, we are a, a blueprint. We're, you know, we're evidence that, look, just because you're racially diverse, just because you're culturally diverse, that's a strength. That's not a weakness. Until it's tested and proven, sometimes people don't believe things, and that's, that's what I see happening you know, as we speak in this surge of, of interest in identity and ancestry and stuff that, that goes on, you know, uh, Sometimes it's easy to discern, and sometimes it's kind of hidden behind the headlines and behind the you know between the lines. But that's what you see being asserted. You know, people saying, "Look, my identity is important. My language, my religion, my ancestry, my culture." You know. Absolutely, it is important to to personal identity, and as you say, we may have some struggles ahead of us to. Um, accept the diversity of our heritage and, and of perhaps our DNA. Um, but who we are as culturally is is a personal matter, and, and it really is not any uh, government business to uh, – I, I know that we've recently had some uh, some news articles out of, uh, I believe it was Seattle, Washington, or Spokane, Washington, where an official white woman identified as black and African and and she has been scolded and reprimanded. I can't remember what her name is right now. Um you might remember her name. Right Rachel um, I think it's Rachel Gazelle or something like that. Yes, yes. And and you know who's to say that she can't identify in the black race uh if that's where she feels more most comfortable. And I think that has been a struggle for so many of us is that, you know, my grandfather looked or my great grandfather looked at my father and said, you know, I danced with my people and, but I, yeah. I come here and I'm, I'm, I'm not a white man and I'm not a black man. I'm that one, right. but I can say I am that man because, I'm not allowed, you know, and this is just pitiful that people have lived their entire lives uh, hiding something or putting it aside, and, and so many of our people have. And sure, so I'll be sure. happy uh, to see the day. Yeah, I'll be happy yeah. to see the day where it's a personal thing and not uh, something that is imposed upon uh, people and, uh, yeah. inappropriately. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it'll be a yeah. wonderful day when we can all identify how we personally feel sure. that we are comfortable with. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it's really- I am, I am very, you know, 
pleased that we are building the venues and building the opportunities to share our, you know, individual family and community heritage, you know, and and share it around and, and wake people up to to the importance of, of identity and importance of ancestry and, and the legacy of our ancestors and stuff that has passed down to us of all origins and that and that we are you know, going forward into into what appears to be growing pains to me and that, you know, the service that we are trying to to, to 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 give to our communities in this generation and and stuff, you know, they they call our elders the greatest generation because of their their fight in World War Two and, and stuff you know, those kind of things. But I see the the generation coming up now from what I see that they're gonna be a great generation in their own time because to have these kind of challenges of uh, of diversity and culture and language that that's being you know uh, a major thing now, and to see the way that they're handling it, you know, people say it's difficult and it's it's, it's hard times and these kind of you know things that go on. And I say, wow, no, I, I see it the opposite way. That I'm surprised there's not even more uh, discord and and trouble and you know that kind of thing. I I, I think it speaks well that. That it's going the way it's going, and and hopefully today we've uh, thrown some ideas out for people and for our listeners and for you know, folks that will listen to the archive uh, things of this. I'm I'm thinking that this uh, series of legacy and identity that we're talking about for you know maybe through the summer, uh, you know hopefully we can stay focused on breaking issues as well as our historic research and stuff like that, and you know maybe uh, turn some people on to 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 uh, sources and and uh, surnames and, you know, historical narratives that, that they'll find either similar to their own or if they dig deep enough, probably is their own in a way. I've seen so many people come to that that journey to, to find out, yeah, I'm probably related to these people and those people. So hopefully we've done some service today with our, with our broadcast. I, is there anything else you guys would want to say or contribute or anything before we, you know, call it an evening? Uh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm so grateful for you um, to ask me to come and speak with you this evening and to discuss these pertinent and relevant issues uh, among our people. And I hope that, you know, my message to your, your community and my community and, and Victoria's community is, you know, um, we need to get into a tribal context. And even though perhaps the um, the red bones overwhelming DNA is not Native American, it might be Gypsy. <laughs> you know, this is another element that needs to be explored because we have not touched on these uh, issues. But as you say, um, we have some upcoming episodes and. Uh, I don't know that any of us have kind of dealt with that, but I think that our biggest mission is to really look at these people in a tribal context rather than just a white or, or, you know, everyday average American descended person. And so I appreciate all your efforts and your genealogical conference, and I wish you guys all the luck, and I'll be back. Um, with you uh, as as many episodes as I can. Thank you, Scott. All right. Yeah, most definitely. And I... 
yeah, I really appreciate both of y'all, you know, being there and taking part in the show. I encourage any of our listeners to give us feedback if you can. You know, we have the website for backintime.biz and Mera, M-E-H-R-A. Um, you know, there's a lot of social media out there, so you can just find any 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 avenue to, to communicate, Facebook or the websites or blogs and things. So uh, telephone numbers, you can track them down on there and stuff. I'm glad to talk to anybody or help in any way we can in, in, in your endeavors, our listeners and folks out there that you have. Uh, relevant points, anything like that. Upcoming shows, shoot it our way. We'll be glad to jump on it, cover it, stuff like that. Um, that being said, I'll sign off for now, and we will have another great show uh, week after next. And I thank everybody for listening, and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. What do? Bye. Uh-huh. <laughs>